Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. My name is Alice and today I get to share with you the conversation I had with David Brooks back in June this year. This is a conversation that has been a long time coming for me. When I first started this podcast, I thought, what if one day I got to interview David Brooks? That'd be kind of crazy. I had bought his book, The Balcony, in 2008 when it came out. And it was one of the first books that I read that made me think, well, first of all, it was one of the first poetry books I ever read that I actually enjoyed. And it was also one that made me think, maybe, maybe one day I might be able to do this. Something about David's style, it felt like it was open to me like it was a path that I might actually be able to go down. If you don't know David's work that well, along with The Balcony, David's also published a wonderful collection called Open House, which came out in 2015. And before that, he had three collections, Urban Elegies, Walking to Point Clear, and The Cold Front. That's a time span of about 35 years, I think. And alongside his poetry work, he's published a whole bunch of other things, fiction, non-fiction. He co-edited Southerly, the literary journal, for 18 years. And he worked at the University of Sydney for many years as well. These days, David lives in the Blue Mountains and one of his primary concerns is animal rights. So to do this interview, I got to go out to Katoomba and meet with him and go to his place and it was just such a fantastic experience. He lives on what he describes as a small refuge. He has, he looks after some sheep, he has a very sweet little dog called Charlie and the stories of his life with these animals in the Blue Mountains are what make up his latest book, The Grass Library. I think I might just read you a little section from the Grass Library, just to set the scene a little bit more. This is David talking about the process of becoming vegan. I found it hard at first to give up cheese, and for a while was guilty of an occasional backslide, but even these ceased after a month or two. You realise how inconsistent you're being and how childish. And we came to see it not so much as a giving up of things, as entering a new world of taste. There was, too, an unexpected pleasure, relief, in the thought that just by not doing something, we were saving lives. You don't realize the guilt you've been suppressing until you no longer feel it. Now I can look at you in peace, writes Kafka. I don't eat you anymore. But this book isn't about veganism or guilt. If I'd permitted myself a nice 18th century subtitle, it might have been an account of three years of philosophical and unphilosophical transactions with animals in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. But ultimately, and more simply, it's about discovery and wonder. Wonder and wondering. Slipping into a flow of things, of being, that all your life, without realising it, you've been holding back from. I enjoyed this book so much. I think I enjoyed it particularly because I got to spend time in the environment that David is writing about, with the animals that David is writing about, and... Every time I went back to it, it reminded me of the experience of being there. When I listened back to this interview, I felt I could hear in my voice 
something of the chaos that my life was at the time back in June. I'm looking at my calendar as I'm saying this and honestly, even just looking at it makes me want to have a panic attack. <laughs> Everything was so crazy and so getting to get on that train and go out to the Blue Mountains and meet David and just spend time with him in this beautiful, quiet space just for a few hours. I tell you what, it was, I hated leaving. I really hated leaving. <laughs> I wanted to stay there, but I had to go back to my own life. So what I've done here is I've left the conversation almost entirely intact. I want you to hear something of the that reverberation of the the slow measured pace of the world that David lives in now and his incredibly measured thinking. I also remember listening back to this conversation how overawed I was and how I didn't feel up to the task of doing this interview. David was incredibly kind to me, not just as an interviewer, but as a fan. You know, he was meeting somebody who had loved his work for over 10 years and I was probably a little bit weird, but he was really, really kind to me. Um, we talk about the role of poetry in David's life now because the impression I get from this conversation is that it isn't his primary focus anymore, which to a fan is a little bit, oh, I felt a little bit sad about that, I guess. But he talks about the way that he thinks about his writing now and, and the purpose of it and how he might write in a way that fits with the way that he thinks about things these days. We do talk quite a bit too about the role of, of animals in his life and his role in the lives of the animals that he lives with. We go into a bit of a discussion about ancient Chinese poetry, which is another interest of David's. And towards the end, we talk about the question of recognition and the ego in a writer's life and where that fits for David now. So I really, really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. So I wondered if maybe you wanted to start by talking about the Grass Library because I thought I could take you back and we can talk about uh, previous publications, but maybe mm. the thing you're most interested in is your most recent Books. Yeah, well, it's, that's that's always been the case that the most recent book is the, the one that you kind of in love with or at least uh, you think is best. But mm. um, it's funny how over 30 years of writing or whatever, you end up with a few favourites and some of them are very early books or whatever. And, uh, yeah, the, the Grass Library is... Um, I'm delighted at the moment at, at the responses I'm getting from the few people who are reading it at this particular point because, of course, it's not released yet. Uh, it doesn't get released until August. But I, um, as I was saying to you earlier, it, it, it started with an essay, started out as... Uh, one possible essay for a book that I was going going to do with John Kinsella. We were on the phone to each other. He was in Western Australia at the time and I was here in Katoomba and we were talking about a book of essays about 
animals in the animal in Australian literature. But then I, I think I think we started to stray further in the conversation and talk about maybe some other essays that we'd like to write one day about animals. And I came up with the animal in philosophy, which is nothing like being modest and um, unambitious. Yeah, it's just a small scale Exactly, just a little project, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But I was also just wondering where the animal was in contemporary philosophy and so forth. And I, and I was, you know, I'd, I'd uh, begun to read Derrida on animals and so forth and I was, um, I was thinking that the animal really needed to be addressed somehow. I was curious about going a little bit further in that direction, but that was one of the things. And then I also said, uh, I think Charlie, my dog, was sitting in front of me watching me and it was probably near dusk and he was probably starting to tremble as he does it or did in those days at dusk and um, and I said and I'd kind of like to write a try to write a biography of my dog I know that sounds sounds kind of crazy but um, and John was suitably you know supportive of this crazy idea uh, but I did like the idea in a way, and I started watching my dog more carefully. I I, I say my dog, I don't mean it possessively like that. And watching him more closely purely because I had this idea of writing about him. And that's one of those glaring things about writing in the first place, you know, that it actually becomes a way of, it, 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 it assists you to see, you know, if you commit yourself to writing, there's nothing like trying to write three or four sentences that you think are going to be very easy to write mm. to expose what you don't know that you need to know in order to complete those sentences. So so writing, and it, writing's always done this for me, you know, uh, it's one of the reasons why I love to write essays, for example because you find yourself learning so much and essays, as you try to write them, expose your ignorance so much. Mm. And so writing a, a biography of my dog, you know, was not really very easy and I, I was taking notes and I was learning all the time as I was building towards the one-day possibility that I would, that I would write this. And this was around about the time that we moved into this little farm. Uh, and uh, within two weeks of moving into the little farm, somebody had said, there's a notice up on the notice board in the co-op. Someone's looking for a home for two sheep. They've run out of grass to feed them. And um, and you have this nice little farm that you've just <laughs> moved into. Mm-hmm. And we had two sheep. You know, within two weeks, we had two sheep. And and this tiny little refuge had begun, you know. And so I'm writing about Charlie. I'm sitting down in the, this, this cabin trying to do a bit of writing. And within a few days, the sheep had started to creep into the sentences as well. And the black cockatoo on the peppermint tree outside had started to creep in. And, 
and it had just started to grow. And that's what that's what happened actually. I mean, over the next three years, I just kept writing about the things that were happening on the farm, and the book formed itself. Mm. It's called the Grass Library because I've built myself a little library, as it were, in the middle of a paddock. Mm. In effect, that's what this is. But, but. Uh, I'm learning so much from the paddock. Mm. Um, the, it, it, I'm le- reading these books less and less, and I'm reading the outside more and more. So the grass library becomes a very logical sort of way of formulating that exchange. You know. But I, I, I've started over the last twelve months or so to leave my door open. You know, the sheep come in. I mean, they've always come in to this writing room um, and you know listener you can't see this but <laughs> but Alice's eyes are over to the French doors where there's a, a, at least one sheep and, no there are two, there are two. <laughs> <laughs> two wanting to come in yeah. and join the conversation they do. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's the book of this place but of course since I have been interested in and been writing about the animal and philosophy. I mean, that, that grew too, and that produced the book before this called Derrida's Breakfast, and it's a set of essays on Derrida. Um, I can't write about the animals here without thinking about and writing about what other people say about animals. It's one of the things that it seems to me is that they're for, for for millennia now, there have been people writing about animals with, without talking to the animals, without without watching, without living with the creatures they're writing about and so forth. I mean, Heidegger, for example, is a glowing case of this. And, um, and, and so just writing about here becomes a dialogue with all my life's up until that point of of being a teacher of literature and so forth but also a dialogue with you know what philosophy says the animal is and and so forth mm. with all the paper animals so the real animals confront the paper animals and 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 the paper animals do what paper animals really should and that is crumble mm-hmm. and 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 burn you know um, in in the light of the these noble creatures I live with, you know, mm. who are, who are kind enough to live with me, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. Um, you said a little bit before when we were just chatting that, in light of that kind of work, you know, bringing, making the paper animals more real and three dimensional. The writing of poetry seems a little bit like a, a meager act. Um, yeah, I thought you'd probably register that. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I, it's not... The writing of poetry used to be my life, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying that it's not in some ways still a very important strain in my life. Um, but... I think we have to contemplate the possibility that the 
that poetry as we know it and we understand it and so forth is also a cultural product um, and that some of the things we hold most dear about poetry may be things that we have to clear our minds of in order to see other things more clearly. Um, I have a chapter in the Grass Library about Charlie uh, coming to my bedside in the middle of the night and I'd been reading Rilke and I'd been putting Rilke you know, open face down beside the bed when I was ready to go to sleep and Charlie was coming and kicking Rilke under the bed mm-hmm. and you know um, I made a bit of a joke of it you know that the Charlie had something against Rilke you know um, because Rilke has been described as one of the first major poets who really tried to engage with the idea of the animal with the with with the animal as its own integral existential intense reality you know and being um, but Rilke got some things very very wrong you know and they were they were imagine they were they were human thoughts and human needs being expressed through the metaphor of the animal and we have to we have to sort of separate out all those modes of use of animals before we can, I think, approach them more honestly with poetry. You know, um, we have to make sure that we're not we're not talking about a paper animal that is serving our use rather than, you know, going to the animal saying, "I'm a poet. What can I do?" Yes, yeah, so. and that's that's. I am a poet. I love poetry. You know, uh, it 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 is. It has been my life, but I think I've got to the point now where, what I want to do is I want to be of use to somebody, and I don't think I'm much use as a poet. I mean, I I think I might be on the edge of, you know, a point where my poetry does something, that it hasn't done before. You know, and that is just open itself just that little bit more and try to be... I've, I've, I've been trying to do this for some time with the poetry, you know. Um, I think it has to be of use, you know, and I want it to be of use to animals. I, and, and so um, that is in a process of development. There, that, that may mean that I just use strengths that I already have or it may mean that I have to find some things that I... I don't know about at this particular point. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> poetry, you know, I, th- I think it's really important that poetry be of use to the people who read it. I think it's really important that, you know, and I think Judith Wright was was like this and had this point. You know that 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 um, that the poetry that she really wanted to to be encountering and be producing was a poetry that um, that gave people the feeling that they were being recognised and their emotions were being recognised and that and and that wasn't playing games and demonstrating the um, the intellectual prowess and you know 
extraordinary cleverness of of the human mind. I think that the intellectual prowess and extraordinary cleverness of the, the human mind is one, one of the reasons we're in such trouble. Um, and I think, so I think that that's another of those parts of poetry that I, I'm, I'm sort of distancing myself from. Um, so yes, poetry is very much a part of it, but, uh, but it also seems as if the needs of these intensely suffering creatures around us are greater than anything poetry can give them at this point. That's what I, when I, that's what I mean by the meagerness. You know? right. mm -hmm. If I get an idea from, for a poem, there's no way on earth I'm not going to write it. You know? Of course I'm going to write it. And of course I'm going to work to have it as be as good a poem as I possibly can can do um, but uh, I'm going to have months and months and months of my life when I I don't even think about poetry because I'm so busy writing an essay that seems to be much more urgent mm -hmm. um, and um, that's probably the best answer I can come up with for that yeah I mean I I don't mean to suggest that poetry per se is one of the mistakes that people make about when they talk about poetry is that they act like it's it's one thing you know it, poetry is vast and and so many different things that it's almost impossible to talk about and you know you've got to be very careful about generalizing about it because poetry there's so many different kinds of poetry um, in, in the first place. No. Yeah, it's like trying to talk about music, just yeah, yeah. as if you could make some generalisation about that. But it's, it's really interesting what you were saying about, there's so many threads I want to pick up on there, but one of them was you were talking about feeling as if maybe your work was on the edge of, or your poetry was on the edge of expanding into some new territory or usefulness. Um, and that sort of struck me because I read I read Open House just recently and as you can see here I've tried to mark the ones that I want to talk about and there aren't too many post-it notes in here but um, yeah I mean reading the, the poem for example The Lambs which is right at the end mm. uh, of the book I mean you can't read a poem like that and not feel incredibly affected and and moved and like your perspective has been changed I guess and yeah I don't know I suppose what all I'm saying is maybe you're already doing what you were talking about trying to do yeah but there's there's something else too okay. that, that, that is just fundamental you know the the least useful feeling I could ever have about my writing is that I've got it I've got it. Yeah, I've nailed it. You right, know. Right, okay. That's useless. Mm -hmm. That's useless. You know, I want to be, you know, even when my poetry's, you know, starting to get fettered and rotting, I want to still feel that I'm actually getting somewhere further, you know. Okay. It, 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 it's just part of it. Part of it is this feeling that we've got, we, we're so 
caught up in our hum human bubble that the distance between us and and a kind of hypothetical reality is so great that um, that we've got to be kidding ourselves that we could ever actually bridge that distance. So you know, we do have to keep pushing ourselves. Opening is what I mean. Mm. Opening ourselves. I mean, uh, it may be that that in the end, all I do is write tiny fragments, because the fragments are those few things that I, I, I feel a real connection with. Mm. Because if, and this is just a hypothesis, but it's something that's happening, it's a, it's a thought that's hanging around my head and it's been hanging around my head for a long time. Um, as soon as I start to connect one fragment with another fragment, I'm using human glue. You know, the glue of reason or the glue of poetic suggestion, poetic, um, the glue of metaphor or, you know, some, some act of poesis is connecting one to the other. And, and, uh, and that is, it's in the connection that the, the, that's where we start to make sense of something, but that making sense is a kind of possession and the possession is what we've done to ruin this relationship with the world. So, so you know, the the mere basic bases of putting one poetic brick beside another um, is sort of a little bit suspect and, and something we need to be more aware of. So, so a kind of maybe fragments are the only way we can see at the moment, you know. Um, um, the 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 world around us, you know. I, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but um, so so people probably w would not understand immediately if all I did was put a jumble of fragments into a, into a book and say this is this is my next book. But um, but that's the kind of thing that might be a possibility. You know, um, it may be that I'm trying. I feel that there's a kind of progress if I'm not trying to finish a poem. Mm. You know, if I finish a poem, how did I round it off? What, what, you know, what I made of it or make of it is a statement, or I make of it as a, uh, I put a kind of border around the image or something like that, so that it has this feeling of completion. Nothing is like that out here. <laughs> it's all much more fluid than that. Mm. Yeah. Given that, then, given the that impulse towards opening and progression, and not wanting to necessarily put a neat frame around things, I I wonder how you feel about um, these these previous books. Like, I'm particularly interested in how you feel about the balcony, um, which is the book that I bought in Canberra in 2007 yeah. and I think I bought it because it has your signature in the front so, yeah. it, was, so it has a signed copy for some reason. Oh because somebody else bought it and didn't like it enough oh, to no. keep it probably. No, this, was a new, this is a new, new, was a new one. bookshop yeah. so I think yeah. you, you may yeah. have been there for launch or something but um, I bought that because I it was a sign to me that poets mm. were real people and they could write their signatures <laughs> in the front of books but yeah reading the balcony was a 
totally transformative experience for me. Um, Right, writing it was from a, a transform transformative experience for me too. But you, Great. Um, for various reasons, you know, um, one, I was challenged by UQP's poetry editor to, you know, she said she heard some of the love poems that, that are amongst the earliest ones in the book. And she said, um, I, I want a book of those poems. Do you think you could do a book of love poems? And I thought, oh, a book is about 30 poems. And yeah, sure, I can do 30 poems. I've got probably about 30 now. And I, I, t- I said to her, yes, I've got about 30, I think. I've almost got it. And she said, no, no, I want about 100, you know. And um, I, I think she wanted human love poems and so <laughs> So forth, but you know what? One of the things that happened in that book was an opening. As I was writing them, I was my sense of my understanding of love was something that you know, as, as a concept, was something that opened up. Um, I I I realized that even when I wasn't writing love poems to the person I loved, you know, um, I. I was still, in a way, writing them, um, and and there was a kind of opening in, in the first place, but also um, because um, the of the intimacy of the love poem. There's 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 you've you've got to you 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 either if you're going to do it, you have to do it. You have to open up. You have to be honest. You have to be. You have to forget what people are going to say about you and the jokes that are going to be made about you and stuff like that. And they're so honest. And you have to just you just have to be honest, or you can't do it. Yeah. And and I think love poems more than any other kind of poem, you know, uh, in my experience at that point anyway, um, are the ones that are most likely to open you, you know. So there was an opening of, of a couple of ways with that book. Um, and and it was a book that had my first poems about my first poems of a new stage in my relationship with animals too the first of those are in there as well mm, mm. Um, I'd written about animals before and you know I've, I've been writing about animals since I started to write poetry mm. but it was with that kind of um, cognitive deep cognitive dissonance you know that I was writing about them. I was writing about about them um, with fascination and with awe, but I was also munching away on them at the time. You know, it. it, it, it I wrote a poem about other poets um, in uh, in open house, but about um, how poets uh, spend their days writing lovely poems about animals and then at, at night, night choose which one they're going to choose eat. Choose which one know. they're going to eat, yes, yeah, such um, a fantastic but, but, ending. But that, was, but, that was, yeah. but that was me as well, you know, I was doing that too. Mm-hmm. So um, by the time I wrote The Balcony, though, I mean, I'd, I'd gotten to the point where I'd, 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 I was trying to heal that dissonance somehow, I'd try, to, try to rid myself of that dissonance. Mm. Be- becoming vegan, but also just thinking more and more about what the relationship was with, with animals, and 
all of the different things that were getting in the way of that relationship and 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 allowing us to abuse them in so many different ways so um uh yeah that book was an opening um I, I'm immensely grateful to Bronwyn Lee, who who was the editor at UQB at the time, for making this wild suggestion and and and, and putting me on that path because I, I haven't gone back, you know. But but what I would say about Open House is that okay, it's got a few more love poems to tailor, you know. Let's be honest and put a name, to, but but the whole book is kind of book of love poems mm. As, uh, you know but but they're they're for the sheep they're for they're for um they're the angry sheep. love poems too i yeah. mean you know I, I think uh one of the reasons why i would never ultimately be content with a life of fragments as a poet is because there's so much that has to be pointed out at the same time. So there's the there's 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 your relationship to what you're seeing in a very intense sort of existential manner, um, and that might be a, a perpetual sort of opening. But on the other hand, you can't see a horror going on without pointing it out, and and you can't do that by just offering a few fragments, that's not going to work. You have to actually declare. Another thing that the poet has to do is to think through stuff, think through situations, think through problems. You, that's another way of being of use, you know. Um, and so, you know, anger is also it's a, another face of love. Mm. I guess what I was saying. Yeah, I think so many of the poems in Open House do that, and in the balcony as well, do that sort of thinking through, and I think that's why they're just so satisfying to read because you, that you can tell that they've come out of this crucible of incredibly difficult thinking work. Um, but... I don't know. I, as you were talking, I was I was reminded too of a poem from Urban Elegies, mm -hmm. which I have marked here, because there's a recurring rat theme. So mm -hmm. rats mm -hmm. come in and out, and one of the poems I really love in Urban Elegies is called um, Rat Theses. Mm -hmm. And I feel as if in that poem there is maybe the first seeds of that, even though maybe at this time you were not vegan and didn't have that that understanding of relationship, that poem I feel like is you leave at the end of the poem you leave the rat alone. It leaves you 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 mm. you consider killing the rat, but you don't. Mm, 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 and then mm. rats come back later in um, open house. I think a few times maybe. Yeah, and there's there's a whole chapter in the grass library. Oh, about rats. About rats great. too, and there's a rat in this cabin. Oh, great. Um, you'll probably meet him in I a little while. So. I hope the, so. the cabin rat. Yeah, great. Um, you can see where the cabin rats chewed the carpet from the roller that under is the door, <laughs> so it could get through a little crack. And and I realised it was only because it needed some water. Oh, okay. And the only place I actually find little rat poops occasionally is by the by the sheep bowl in the 
in the window oh, sill. That's for the sheep. Okay. That's for the sheep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Charlie can't get up there with the sheep. Um, drink from that. But uh, well, look, I you know I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I I think that uh, what can open you with an animal, uh, with your relationship with animals, is a moment when you realize um, the existential intensity of an animal's life um, and the desperation with which it clings to that life uh, and realize that it's very similar to your own you know, and uh, and that you're not you're not killing because I'm talking about killing here um, you're not killing uh, a being that's utterly different to you you're actually killing some being that is close to you you know um, I uh, I had a horrible period at one point where to protect my own family I was my own child my baby uh, I had to rid a house of rats and um, I was so um one, worried about her, the baby, and two, um, so ingrained with an attitude towards rats, you know, and a set of cultural assumptions that they were somehow bearers of plague and horror and so forth, that, um, that I felt that I had to kill the rats in this house. Mm -hmm. And I systematically went about killing the rats. I was about 33 or so, 34, 35, and uh, so it's half a lifetime ago almost, you know. Um, and I, I, I would kill a couple each night and I'd package them up and I'd put them in the garbage. I'd wrap them in newspaper and after I'd killed them, you know, and, uh, and I would see their eyes, you know, still... I mean, they were dead, I think, but the eyes were still wet and looking, shining and looking at me, as it were. Um, I I think that process deeply traumatized me in a way that I I um, I was not quite aware of at the time, you know, and it haunts me even now. And this is and it's it's a small thing in a way because I mean people would say it's a small thing, but this was I think I killed thirty one of them or whatever, and I you know and. I, since then, I, I I don't think I could do that. I couldn't kill a rat, you know. I couldn't. Um, if I see a rat, I, I want to take it to dinner, you know. I don't want to kill it, you know, because I just feel I I owe so much, you know. And I've got so much to work off, as it were, you know. It's sort of like karma or whatever, necessarily. But uh, I think somewhere in my bones, I've got this deep sense of karma, so can't get rid of it, you know. Can't can't make myself differently. Um, but I, and there was one particular rat, one night, one particular rat, and and, um, and I still remember that. And I remember a moment when I looked at it, it looked at me, and, and I saw that it was terrified, you know, it was doing everything it could to preserve its life. And it, and it had put up a hell of a runaround fight, and, and I killed it.
and uh, I I think that that's that's a that's like a that's a moment that goads me. Um, so it's not surprising that that, that it's a in a Freudian way, <laughs> it's a recurring theme, um, and it's a recurring moment, and it's a recurring face-off, mm. and uh, and I don't know why I keep going back to it, but um, because I, evidently because whatever occurred then hasn't been worked through, or or maybe that is the way it works itself through um, by reminding myself of it reminding me of it and uh, reminding me of um, how far there is to go you know? mm. Mm. Um. that's like confessing a murder but that's what it feels like I yeah. mean it is like con confessing a murder you yeah. know um, and uh, I don't mean to leave us both sort of wondering what to say, but... No, that's okay. That's <laughs> fine. Um, um, that's really fine. There are just so many things that I, I want to ask you about, and I'm just thinking, where do I want to go next? I think um, I'm really interested to hear about... Um, your relationship to Chinese poetry because you mention in I think one of the poems in Open mm. House going searching for you have that feeling yes, of yeah, I just yeah. need to read a poem and you go searching and you get past the Chinese poets but I was thinking as you were talking about the paper animals the, and the way that um, poets generally represent animals or have done as sort of two-dimensional I wondered about how that happens in Chinese poetry and if there are any satisfying examples of animal representation there? I think um, one thing that we were talking earlier, I was talking earlier about the way you put together the brick beside the brick in the poetic process. Mm. Um, and one of the things about the Chinese written character, and to go back to that essay of Ezra Pounds uh, um, is at least the way Pound formulated it and talked about it in his essay was that, was that um, there was a, generally speaking a kind of lack of intrusive material between one character and another in classical Chinese poetry in a it, to, to the extent, at least, uh, in which the 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 individual characters and images they stood for, or whatever, were able to form their own relationships, and that the, the 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 reader was able to form the relationship between them, rather than being pushed into a particular relationship by a grammar that insisted on subject verb object or or a particular kind of um, uh, uh, power arrangement within 
within the poem, within the line, hierarchy within the line, and so forth. So there was a more there was more openness. This word we keep coming back to, um, uh, and that I think has always appealed to me. You know, the lessons that Pound offered from classical Chinese poetry as he was understanding it. Now, a lot of Sinologists have come on afterwards and said Pound was wrong. He didn't really understand it properly, and so forth. That's that's fine. <laughs> I loved the way he explained he explained it. Mm. Um, whether it's true or not doesn't really matter. Though I suspect it was as true as it it was false. You yeah. know, I, I think there was definitely something in there, and um, and that has always intrigued me because. The classical Chinese poetry very often is, from the first time I ever read any of it, I, 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 was, I was captivated by it because it seemed to me to be as fresh, you know, a thousand years after it was written as it was when it was written. Now, I don't know how fresh it was. I wasn't back there, you know, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It's one of those stupid things that you say. But what I mean is it was still fresh, you know, it might not have been anywhere near as fresh as when it was first written, but it had. Why did it have that feeling of freshness? Because I think there was more space in it for the for the my reader's mind to go into it. You know, for other readers' minds to go into it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I think that that's it's it's the space in it and the way it's not actually it it it's leaving a lot of room for the mind who encounters it, even if that mind is a thousand years after the poem was written, there's still room in it for that mind to be putting things together. And that is a freshness. Mm-hmm. You know. um, there's that, but there's also a particular relationship to, because we know that that poetry was a poetry of hills and rivers and mountains and rivers without end, to, you know, to use Snyder's um, formulation. And and it's been my kind of landscape. The, that's the kind of way I like to think about the landscape and the, the creatures in it and so forth that I experience and have experienced all my life. I think it's been taught to me by classical Chinese poetry, but it can't have been taught to me in the first place, if I didn't, in a sense, find myself in this in that place, mm-hmm. one of the, I mean, lots of lovely things have been said about me, and lots of shitty things have been said about me, but um, and they're probably all true, <laughs> but um, well, maybe the shitty ones, but um, but one of the things that I've loved was just something that, that that Kevin Hart just sort of threw away in an email one day, and he said, you know, you you like the Wang Wai of the Blue Mountains, and I thought. <laughs> Wow, God! I wish someone would say that in print. I mean, that's the way. I, but, but, but no, there is something of that feeling. I, 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 I have deep sympathy for, and a feeling almost a communion with some of those ancient Chinese poets because they loved wine, they, they loved to just sit in the dark and watch. They loved the things that I am obsessed by in my poetry, moonlit nights the the darkness the forest Mm. the creatures in the forest almost as if that's such a primal part of every mind you know we spent our minds yours and mine 
and every other one, you know, that we could ever encounter, are, are partly in the present, but a vast part of the mind has been formulated over millennia, you know, over millions of years, most of which were spent in the dark and in the forest, as it were. So there's that, that, that's still a huge part of us. And the civilised bit is just a thin veneer, mm. you know. And, and poetry works best if it allows that whole deep mind through, you know, rather than try to sit on top of it and, and, and write just the crust, you know, which is why... Um, that's one of my understandings of something like deep image, um, and the, the 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 classical Chinese poets seem to have. They're they're a constant reminder for me. I I mean I I'll have periods when I'll read them for months and then I won't touch them for four or five years. You know, I'll just I'll just have given myself a surfeit. But if I get to the point where I really feel like writing some poetry, but I've got nothing. Um, they have sometimes in the past been the, you know, I, I just have known that I could pick up, you know, one of the newer translations of the 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 mountain poets or something like that, and and within three or four pages, I'm bound to be writing something, you know. Mm. So. I love what you say there too about the darkness being such a primal and, and common theme because so many of your poems um, have been such a great comfort to me because they happen at night and they happen late at night and when I read them I just have this fantastic feeling of comfort because someone else is awake too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. sleep well and that's why I think the I contacted you in the first place because I really wanted to talk about The Way Back. Mm. But that's not the only poem that deals with no, no, insomnia. No, no, no. no, a great many that. Yeah. Well, because I'm, you know, I'm an insomniac. You know, I, 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 don't know, I think it was Carmel Bird years ago, a conversation with Carmel Bird, and she said, um, "Why do you talk about insomnia, David? You know, um, isn't it, isn't it like given time? I mean, couldn't you actually see it as, you know?" Uh, as, a, as a gift rather than a, a curse, you know, and I, I started to try and turn it around. It's never entirely been that way, but I do know that, you know, in the middle of my life, you know, the, in my thirties, my forties, um, that insomnia, that that waking in the middle of the night, not being able to sleep again until dawn or whatever, that was a, kind of a horrible time. That was a, it was a. a desolate time and it was a because it was just full of oppressive worry or or a deep consciousness of my own mortality and a kind of panic about the end of it the end of everything you know i i'm happy to report you you're still quite a ways to go yet but it it passes and it can actually be a time of extraordinarily peaceful contemplation and so I, I, I'm still waking at four in the morning or four thirty in the morning, and I'm still lying awake for two hours or whatever before I get a last little snippet of sleep before I, I have to get up. But, but um, 
these days it's, it's the panic is gone there's no panic there's, mm. it's it's more like um, I'm more likely to just be thinking about something I'm writing and solving you know a connection I've been trying to get or whatever you know or or or, or planning getting a set of questions lined up that I have to explore the next day to advance something further. So it, it you know, I do find the dark a really good time for writing because there's no interruption, there's no, you know, there's no, you're not going to get phone messages, you're not going to get emails, you're not going to get people knocking at the door or sheep knocking at the door. Um, and, and, um, uh, and on that blank slate of darkness, there's a lot of writing that becomes possible. I mean, I, I, I still have... They don't happen very often these days, and it's probably just as well, but I still have some nights which are almost magical in the sense that the mind seems to be suddenly more awake and alert than it's been for ages, as it were, and, and ideas that almost pouring out you know and there are some nights where I've got to get up and write them down even in the briefest note form because um, I'm afraid that in come morning I'll remember that there were a lot of ideas but <laughs> won't remember what they are mm, mm. Um, and and so night is much more my friend now than it's, it it was in, in, in my 30s and 40s uh, mm. and Yes, and 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 I, I guess a hell of a lot of my poems do come from the night, from the night. But um, I've always thought maybe I should have psychoanalysis to work out a few few of these things, but I don't think it would have any answers really. Mm-hmm. You know. Do you have any kind of spiritual practice, meditation practice, anything like that? Um, I, it's funny. I, I would I would call myself a spiritual person, um, but without any religious um, connotations. No religious belief, as it were. But um, uh, I, and no metaphysical sense. I mean, I think that we do live with angels and we do live with devils and so forth. But they're around us, and they're you know. Most of the devils are human. A lot of the angels are animal. You know, but but we, but I, I I it's not metaphysical. My my real ki- my angels are real Kian angels, as it were. But um, I I uh, so not in any. I was very interested in Zen. In my twenties late teens and early 20s um, and I think that I internalized a lot from that period but uh, but I'd hesitate to give any name to the to the the practices that I find myself with I mean I don't know whether I meditate or not I mean I I um, I do spend at least an hour a day 
or night, mm-hmm. um, trying to still the mind to a to to a, a a very silent, very still point. Um, uh, I don't reach it very often. It's a very hard thing to do, but um, but at other times. I don't know. It's as if spirit is brought to me. You know, some spiritual thing is brought to me. You know, like Henry the Ram will come to the door, and um, and I'll open the door, and he won't want anything except to be stroked. You know, to have his cheek stroked or something like that, and he'll rest his head on my hand. You know, and it. And that's, that's uh, like I say in one of the poems in Open House, it's a gift beyond measure, you know. Um, but, it's, but it's a spirituality, you know. The birds do it, the birds offer it too, the creatures around here offer it. Um, mm. The light offers it, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, putting, again, putting a frame around that seems... Yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, um, I think I've, 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 I'm very lucky to have been able to create this space, you know, or to, or, or to have been able to find this space that seems to create itself at, um, here and 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 around me, and and I know that I'm lucky, and I know it's a, it's a great gift, and I, um, and. I feel that it's also a responsibility as a consequence, um, and there is something spiritual about it. Uh, I can't put my finger on it. If I could, then it probably wouldn't be. I wouldn't be using the word spiritual in the first place. But um, yeah, mm. can't say. Well, we've we've gone all the way to spirituality so I can I could almost leave it there but I'm just wondering if there are things that um, I mean it sort of sounds as if your relationship to poetry and maybe specifically Australian poetry is um, like it's almost like a distant thing and, and I mean you were at University of Sydney for, for a good long while and that was that was a huge part of your life but um, where you are now, I'm just you know sitting here surrounded by trees and it's perfectly silent and it's almost to me that all just seems so irrelevant in a way. Um, and I just wonder what your what how you think about um, your place, I suppose, if that's not too sort of blunt a word to use. And yeah, how you think about the the rest of the goings on in. I um in the Australian poetry world. I could, I could manufacture an answer. Or I could, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's. I'll be honest with you. Um, one of the things that I really struggle with is my fucking ego. Uh, I'm sick of it. I'm absolutely sick of it. I'm sick of 
the way it uh, still wants people to listen, uh, the way it still takes notice of uh, people's responses to things and so forth. Um, I, it's like having a chronic disease that I really wish I could just get rid of. I've worked really actually fairly hard to rid myself of some of those things that were just making me sick, like a craving for awards or whatever, you know. Um, I I want to be in a place where I write for the purposes of the text itself. I don't mean in any artistic way. I don't mean that as in, you know, poetry for poetry's sake or something like that. If I'm writing about the abuse of sheep, for example, I want it to be about that. I don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. I don't don't want it to be anything to do with me. I want to be a function that can do the best that I'm capable of as the the functionary um, for that argument, for that work, right? Because I my the ego is the thing that's going to ruin it. The ego's the it's the only person that the ego is really going to hurt is me anyway, and I'm sick of being hurt by my own ego, right? So I've got to get rid of it, you know. Um, I've I've got to find. I would love to find some way to be totally rid of it. I don't think it. it it's possible that it it can't be get got rid of. It's possible that, you know, in the. T- Death or complete freedom from ego is the end of writing. You know, it, 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 it's possible that, you know, we, we, these things will not be rid of one another and that the ego is necessary. But I'd like to get to the point where it no longer interfered. Um, and I think with most writers, it's, it's, a, it's a dominant thing. It's, it's the most important thing for, you know, Many, many, many writers, and they and they are so devastated when they can't write anymore, or they're so devastated when this doesn't happen, or this doesn't happen, or you know, I know people who refuse ever to write again because they haven't gotten enough recognition, or whatever. I know people who give up because, you know, it's it's like that's that's not that's that's that's. That's just interference and it's being dominated by something that really shouldn't be part of the equation, it seems to me. So um, when you say, I seem to be distant, um, I, I'm certainly distant from the scene, as it were. You know, I mean, um, I have friends who are writers. I, I'm very happy to read their work and, to, and, and, and their work can give me joy. But, um, but also these days, if I find myself three or four lines into a book of poetry and and um, 
and I think oh this is going to be a lot of work for no real point I'll just close it up straight away and push it away I don't want to mm. I don't want to be surrounded by books of poetry I'm getting rid of about a third of my poetry library because I don't want to be surrounded by books of poetry I haven't read and I never will read you know uh, I was going to ask you about that as well. The, uh, the piles, I think you mentioned in, in a poem in Open House, this, the books that just yeah. are always going to remain unread. It sounds like yeah. you're taking a stand against them. Well, yes. Um, I, for other reasons too, I realised that I've got on my shelves books by p people I find rather toxic and I, I'm thinking I'll, I'll, I'll help purify the space of it a little bit more by giving those to a second-hand shop you know, rather than have them and their names and so forth staring at me. Mm. They do stare. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's time <laughs> so, to stare. Yes. <laughs> Some names you, I love and I'm very happy to have them stare, but yeah. um, you know, I don't, don't think I'll ever throw out. You know. Is there a book up there that you look at like you return to in a moment of... Uh, no, but there was on my desk uh, a, a, until three years ago there was a first edition of Ezra Pound's Lustra which was the book that had the first of his Chinese translations mm -hmm. and it had in a station at the metro and so forth and it had as an epigraph this wonderful four-line poem that has no title um, about a field mouse mm. in the grass and and it's, it's just when i sh show that poem to people and say it was written by pound they gasp you know that's not the pound they expected you know and i had a copy of this book and it was like one of my sacred books as it were on, and it was right there. He points to just behind his computer, mm. um, and um, and I had a poet's lunch, and I invited twenty or thirty poets here to have some vegan food and and have a nice afternoon uh, in February of two or three years ago. And about a month later, I realised it was gone. What? And it had been stolen. Um, and I don't know who stole it. But uh, And I don't like to think of it because a lot of my close friends were there. Um, and I don't want to suspect anyone. So I, I, I've got to assume that it was the one person who came that day who I, I didn't recognise and was the friend of a friend, as it were. Yeah. Um, so well, this is a this is an official call out to anyone who might have that book and want to give yeah. it back to you, send the, it to you. Yeah, they can do it anonymously. Yeah, and, yeah. Or if anyone has a copy, they're just happy, willing to share. Yeah, well, that's that would be another thing too. Mm. I mean, I've got most of the poems in you know four or five different volumes of selected poems and collected poems yeah. of, of of pounds. But ironically, that epigraph for the field mouse. I mean, I, I had written it out in my diary, so I've got it. Mm. But, you know, um, that, that I don't think has been published anywhere else. Right. And so so um, that one is a, 
that one is a hard one. But there was something about the book. It was the the paper. Mm. It was the typeface because it was it was printed in 1912 and uh, and you know to have been printed on a small press and so forth. So. Um, and it was it had been through the mill. I mean, it, the 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 spine had been ripped off and the color uh, cover, you know, lifted off rather than opened, mm. and so forth. But it was just, um, you know, it's suggesting that neither poetry nor poets are sacred things. <laughs> do you think? Um, do you think that you could remember that? Maybe we could have that as the end of the episode. That little epigram. Yeah, or if you have it written down in easy reach somewhere? Um, I'm sure I do somewhere. Um, Take your time to find it. There we go. I'll, I'll just... I'll read you the entry for a second. A poem by Ezra Pound, which I came upon for the first time only a couple of years ago and which I keep losing... I just thought of it again and had to search for it. I'm copying it out here as the safest place for it. I find now that it's from Lustra. How did I miss it? Of which, until recently, there was a battered first edition just a metre from me here in the writing room, though now I can't find it and have come to the conclusion subsequently that, yeah, someone flogged it. Um, and they left me the spine. <laughs> I've got the spine. Old book. <laughs> yes. You see, that's part of the original cover, so the original spine. And the days are not full enough, and the nights are not full enough, and life slips by like a field mouse, not shaking the grass. Mm.